BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. How would you like to start? No, no, you just usually you, you do a thing, but now you're not doing the How thing. How would you like me to do it? What should I do? No, that's absolutely yeah, fine. I I've been wondering, I've been, no, I've been wondering for how long you could sustain that. I read from the New York Times. Seven, oh, really? <laughs> seven podcasts for the movie buff. Whether you're looking to keep up with the Oscar contenders, understand the changing business, or dive into Hollywood history, there's a show for you. And then follow seven podcasts yes. about movies. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Two thirds of the way through, <clears throat> it says Kermit and Mayer's film review. Yes. E- now this is all great, and uh, at this point we welcome all our new American downloaders. Can you download in America? You download in America? Yeah. yeah why not? Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Global, global reach, global reach, international. Everybody loves us. Yeah. Easily Britain's most recognisable and beloved critic. Why is beloved? Why is it three syllables? Why, why, is it not why aren't you just beloved? Well, actually, you can say beloved. Are you happy with that? Well, like, yeah, I don't mind beloved. either way. I mean, as long as it's nice about me, I don't mind how you say it. It's like, it's like when you get a word in a hymn. Why aren't you just loved? Well, well most... Why, why beloved? Why, why the B? What, what, does that give it a, extra emphasis, the fact that you're beloved? Yes, I think loved is personal and beloved or beloved, is more impersonal. Do you think? Yeah, If yes. I mean, yes, beloved I think... Beloved sounds ecclesiastical. It does sound ecclesiastical. Oh, Lord, <laughs> we are much beloved. <laughs> I was going to say, place. it's like that thing in a hymn when a word is t- turned into many syllables in order to make it fit. Yes. You know, I'm trying to think of an example now, but you, but you put the ed on the end of it, you know, and lo, he walked on. That one. No, he didn't. Anyway, you are Britain's most recognisable and, and beloved beloved critic. Mark Kermit is known for his trademark quiff, <laughs> his encyclopedic knowledge of the horror genre and his infectious passion for cinema. And, and, and it is interesting that that's the way they did it. Hair, horror, cinema. His, his Friday he, afternoon... Read it again. His Friday... Afternoon film review. Once more. Once, Along, once, no, hang on. Once more. No, I know, I know. Compounded by. No, no, no. Read the. Alongside <laughs> Simon Mayo, a BBC Radio mainstay, has gained. Alongside Love Emma Dibdin, writer of this piece. I'll have you know I'm the host, he's the contributor. These are the time honoured things. So thanks. So his, New York Times giveth and, and the New York Times, Times giveth, taketh, away. taketh away. So his. Read that whole sentence again. I've said it. No, no, once more. It's gained a cult once following more. on both sides of the Atlantic since its genesis in 2001. Though affectionately called wittertainment after its host's tendency to witter in charming but aimless fashion. Okay, and that's where I take issue. Charming but aimless. <laughs> which, of those, which of those words? I wa- that's not a bad thing to put no, on I, a I, tombstone. Charming but aimless. Charming but aimless. He was all right. He was, he was quite fun. The show packs in plenty of substance alongside, second use of the word alongside, I notice. <laughs> this one is acceptable. Yeah. The charismatic banter into its two-hour episodes. Kermode, Charism- charismatic banter. Now, that is never not a phrase I ever thought I'd hear. Kermode brings his sprawling, idiosyncratic movie knowledge to bear on the week's new releases. His impassioned raves and furious rants offset by the deadpan mayo, who is alongside. <laughs> Doesn't it say... It's like a tug. A tug is alongside a battleship. <laughs> a tug is not alongside. A tug is in front of it. Tugs it. No, alongside. Oh, yeah. Well, it has to draw alongside. 
No, it has to go in front. That's how it works. Yeah, but it, it, alongside and then in front. <laughs> or I'm still not a tug. Or in front. No, no I'm, I'm, that's I'm a, a tug. I never said you were. You implied yeah, it. No, no. Emma it's... Dibdin implied that I was a tug. I'm not. <laughs> equal but different. Primus inter pares. But is that, does that mean equal but different? First among equals. First among equals? Yeah. That doesn't really fit. I'll carry on. Okay. I, you know, I was, um, when I was at Manchester University and the motto of, I've said this before, the motto of Manchester University was arduous ad solum, which means strive towards the sun. And I thought it meant work on your own. Okay. Well, that's yeah, understandable. What it sounds like. Yeah. Fair enough. So I did. Work on your own. Work on and your you own. And you continue. Yeah, it's exactly. But I, but I work alongside the mainstay <clears> deadpan <throat> Simon Mayer. Peter Ayres uh, says, Dear in the house and doctor and the medics, greetings from the new parents' night shift section of the Architect's Alcove. In the interest of intersectionality at the BBC, I thought it might be the moment to draw together two of your mutual interests, uh-huh. the use of birdsong as cover for expletives and the comedian... Frankie Howard. Now, before we go any further... Yeah, we have Frankie Howard did before. Yeah, we have Frankie Howard did before. <clears throat> Do we have any Frankie? Can we... Because the, the comparison here is going to be with Frankie Howard. OK. But it occurs to me that many people who go, I know that Simon many years ago appeared alongside... Alongside. Frankie Howard. And you were very deadpan. It's what I do. I appear you remain alongside stay. people. You were a mainstay who appeared deadpan alongside Frankie Howard. Um, but they might go, remind me again... About how Frankie Howard sounded. Is how you sound it? <laughs> Can we have that again? <laughs> okay, so Peter Ayres, who's not the first to point this out, yeah, I have to say. That there is a bird. Yeah, he says, Sir, I give you the Ida Duck. <laughs> so we used to do this quite a lot when, when I was back over the road at that other place. Because it's just incredibly funny. It is. is incredible. Might I suggest subbing the occasional Ida into your usual birdsong? I'm sure your Wizzo production team can source a gorgeous, clean recording of this delightful waterfowl. Thank you. Please could you give a big was up to all the collegiate shag dancers out there? It's a real thing. No, the gag never gets old. <laughs> Thank you. This and, Peter Ayres. And we are the place to come for a gag that never gets old. It would be interesting if next time we have to use... Birdsong, if there's an Ida Duck in there. To do that. Or we could use Frankie. There'll probably be copyright or something. We could say we could say that it's an Ida Duck. Oh, that's true. OK, we could just pretend. You know, it's like that thing on, on pop records when they steal something and then they say, oh, no, we, we played it again. It just sounded the same. Is that what they say? They used to do that with Top of the Pops. On Top of the Pops, if you were going to play on Top of the Pops, you theoretically had to go into a studio and re-record the song because you weren't allowed to play the recording version of it. I so, think, yeah, a long, a long time ago. And then you had to sing live with the Johnny Pearson Orchestra. So it was like a live no, no, but version not, of yeah, No, there was that version, but there was also, even when you were miming, you weren't meant to be miming to the record. You were meant to have gone into a studio and recorded the whole thing from scratch again. And then, of course, what everyone would do is they just you know, they'd book a studio for two hours and then they'd just give you the same master tape. A, it's not a myth. It's not a myth. I've, I've heard people who work yeah, in the music industry say it. I think they moved on quite a lot from... I think that's like early 70s. Yes, that's what I meant a long time ago. We that's moved, what I said. We moved on from that. I didn't say recently. I said in the past. Anyway, Eleanor Lovegrove wants to chip in at this point. Uh, while at a loose end on Sunday, I decided to investigate the outlandish claim that there might be programmes besides your own on the much under-publicised BBC Sounds app. What's the BBC Sounds app? I've, I've never, never heard, I've never heard of it. mentioned. But anyway, apparently we're on it, and 
According to Eleanor, there might be other programmes on it. Really? Like what? The Archers? <laughs> he said with barely concealed... <laughs> To my great surprise, I discovered not only that this is true, but that some of the other podcasts to be found there are actually quite good. Not a patch on the BBC's flagship film programme, OBS, but quite good nonetheless. One such offering is Beyond Today from Radio 4. This daily 20-minute show, and then Eleanor says in brackets, they're really not putting the effort in. (laughs) Like 20 minutes. Takes one story from the headlines each day and explores it in more depth. Friday's episode was about self-care and mental well-being. One of the themes to emerge was the importance of gratitude and thanking others. Right. In this spirit, at the end of the podcast, two of the off-air production team were brought out from the shadows and given their own moment on the airwaves, doubtless to thank them for all their unseen hard work. So this is a good idea. Yeah. And then it happened. Um... I don't know about you, I thought it was very well produced, uh, Philippe Beaumont. Well done. I thought it was very well mixed. Thank you, Nicholas Rauffast. 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 A voice familiar, oh. yet unexpected, travelled from my fruit-based device oh. and into my earphones and unmistakably Gallic. Is it him? It is him. Is it really him appearing on another show? But then he corrected his colleague's pronunciation of his name and I knew it could only be... Nicolas. ...man. Only a discussion about vegan marshmallows could have made me more certain. <laughs> so if you're missing French Nicolas from Wittertainment Towers, fear not. He's just down the corridor at Radio 4, building his part up. <laughs> Tinkety-tonk and down with moonlighting. I'm how, outraged. How lovely to hear that voice, though. You know he's from Croydon and he's like... He's moon. putting it on, I know. Else, yeah. It's just an outrage. And, and apparently when he, goes to other, when he goes to other places, he pretends to be German. <laughs> he's got a whole range of, of accents that he does, yeah. Uh, right. None <clears> of them <throat> genuine. Um, this is from, I don't know if I can say that. Let me just wander through. Just <laughs> this is from, I don't know if I can say that. Well, it's, it's, you're never quite sure. it's a podcast. They can take it out, say it, and they can bleep it out if later on you discover that they can't. If they can, they can put Frankie Howard all over it in post-production. So just say anyway, it. Brian says, hello to Monsters Inc., Sully and Captain Sully from a long-term listener and almost never emailer. Okay. A couple of years ago, in the otherwise much-enjoyed world of cine in Newport, I experienced the worst ever breach of Wittertainment Code of Conduct. Yes, worse even than the security guard in the front row next to me watching Gravity and IMAX in a super-reclined seat who spilled nachos, cheese sauce and salsa all over his work jumper (laughs) without noticing. The greater breach was when two mothers plus children in the row in front of me, turned around to take a series of group selfies in front of the opening credits of the film until they got the killer shot of the film's name above their heads. When I objected to this, I was told with absolute indignance that this was one of the children's first trips to the cinema. So how would they remember otherwise? And what a selfish birdsong I was. I suggested that they get a photo beside, I don't know, the enormous poster for the film in the foyer outside. Outside, yours, Tiggity Tonk, and so on. Brian and Monmouthshire. Blimey. This is, I mean, this is getting worse. No, it now. really is. So, waiting for the, so the, it's one thing for the title, for the certificate. Certificate, yeah. But waiting for the film to start and then having a group selfie. Yeah. Really, really. What is to be done, Mark? What is, what to, is be to be done? What is to be done? As Lenin once asked. <laughs> but what is to be done? Can we say Lenin? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he's running for election, is he? <laughs> okay. Okay, it's just been. Made it very clear that okay. we're not allowed to express an opinion on Lenin. Okay. So on the one hand, some people think this, and on the other hand, other people think that. 
And you may you may think either of those things about yes. about Lenin. And some people feel very strongly. Some people feel strongly, and some side. people feel less strongly about the other side. That's right. And Vladimir right? Ilyich Ulyanov, better known to the world as Lenin. It is amazing that Boney M didn't sing a song with that lyric, isn't it? What Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known to the world. As Lenin, that one. As Mar Baker. They'd have been great. They'd have been really good. But well, they did one about, who was it? Rasputin, didn't they? I, I'm going to stop now because there's lots of things to do and I don't want to... You want you want to actually review a film now, don't you, which is going to make me feel very odd? Are we going to tag no, it's, it's, in, it's, in, it's in the end one. It's in the no, end we're going to do it now, I think. Are we going to no, do it No, no, it's, usually, it it's usually in the end. Which it, yeah, we usually traditionally do it at the Let's end. Let's put it in at the end then. Let's yeah. not do it now because that would be really weird. Well, the Boney M song that gets forgotten about is Belfast. That's one of the it's most really, incisive it really examinations cut, about the Troubles. Cut through the, the, the fog. Lived, yeah, and, and their distinctive Irish accents really spoke <laughs> to the heart of what was wrong and what needed to be done. It's funny, is every now and then I wake up and think, did Boney M's Belfast actually exist or did I just imagine it? No, no, it, It's it, a real it, thing. It, anyway, um, on with the show... Hello, welcome to the programme. A couple of hours of movie conversation with me and him. New York Times approved movie conversation. Yes, that's right. Uh, New York Times last weekend. Last weekend. Said, if I had to drop a list of the seven, why seven, I'm not sure, best film podcasts in the world. Evs. It wasn't ranked, but we were were in that list. But we were number one. No, we wasn't ranked, but we were number one. Oh, I see. So we weren't, we weren't first, but we were number one. So we're top seven. Top seven. We're in the top seven. Yeah. Well, I think we're all equal first. We equal all win first. prizes. Exactly. We're all first among equals. Yes. So uh, we welcome all our new. Uh, and how did they describe listeners. it, Simon? I can't remember. I need can't to get really. on with the show. Okay. Yeah. Um, they said, "Mark Kermode's film review show." Alongside Simon Mayo. No, that's not quite actually. I think what they it said. is. I think what they I think said. That's what was, they said. <laughs> they said his Friday afternoon film show. His uh, Friday uh, afternoon film show. Who's the his? Who's the? I'm not sure. Who's who's that referred to? His. You can't be you because you can't appear alongside Simon Mayo. You are spoiling everything. Got to be it me. Was, it was a lovely thing. It was a lovely moment, and then it all has to be about you in the end. Emma Dibdin at the New York Times. Thank you so much. <laughs> Next time, I'm going to suggest a rewrite. Um, Martin Richard Bowie. Hello. Oh, yeah. that's a brilliant name. Bowie as in Bowie Knife. Yeah. So maybe Bowie. Well, it's B-O-W-I-E. Yes, but isn't that, a, isn't that originally as a name pronounced Bowie? Because it was at the Bowie Knife, isn't it? So maybe he pronounced it Could be it Bowie. Bowie. Could be Bowie. Could be Luxury Yacht. Who he, knows? He doesn't provide me with uh, a phonetical guide at, at all. It could be have a silent uh, W or a silent B. I'm uh, betting you it's Bowie in that case. Well, maybe Martin Richard will get in touch. Dear Flavoured Gin and Slimline Tonic, as a dedicated short and medium-term listener of The Great Show and devoted member of the church, I take every available opportunity to shamefully proselytise and convert the ignorant masses to our beloved church. Whilst not the best environment to preach the teachings of the church, I tried during my stint as a nightclub manager... <laughs> To, to brainwash the masses. How did he do that? Attempts to convert have included, but were not limited to, broadcasting your show to staff at 3am during cleaning operations, <laughs> best boss Evs, <laughs> signing off all work emails with tinkety tonk old fruit and down with the Nazis, invariably posting photographs of Jason Isaacs to our social media pages, and forcibly downloading the lucrative app onto the phones of new staff 
upon induction. Though I have to say, disturbingly, I'm having problems with my app. Yeah, I know. Did you say it's no longer available at the app store? It's no longer available, and I've noticed that our takings are way down, and I think that must be the problem. Do you think organised crime has moved in? It could well be the case, but um, we so we need to do something. We need to take control and do something about that. Okay. Anyway, when contemplating my departure from the world of talky nightlife, I knew I had to leave a wittertainment-related legacy on the English Riviera and decided that my last action would be to infiltrate the cocktail menu with a drink of my own creation. I have a feeling any reference will be lost on alcohol-saturated 18 to 21-year-olds, but we must all do our bit. I have attached evidence uh, of my propaganda. And here it is. Uh, premium martinis. Yeah. Dry martini, £9. Belvedere porn star, £25. Passionate, promiscuous, premium version of a classic. Left Bank is a £10. Light My Fire, £20. And for a mere £9, you can get a Jason Isaacs. Thank you very much. Sharp and fruity. A cucumber garnish complements perfectly this refreshing toast. Can I just say nothing needs a cucumber, cucumber garnish? It's just, I mean, Not least because cucumber doesn't taste of anything. Cucumber is one of those things like celery. It doesn't. It just tastes of salt if you put salt on it. An interesting email from uh, Brendan O'Halloran. Okay. That rings a bell. No, it's not Brendan O'Hanrahan. It's Bre- Brendan O'Halloran. Okay. Simon and Mark, further to your recent contributor's reference to Ray Fines and lobbies, because mm-hmm. we'll, we'll be getting to the lobby correspondent shortly. Every time I hear the word lobby in your show, it reminds me of Brendan Shine's classic ditty. Do you want your lobby washed down, Shine? Do you want your lobby washed down? I can't hear you. No. She signs up for me day as she passes. Do you want your old lobby washed out? Is that supposed to be vulgar? <laughs> is that like comedy for old people? That actually is very saucy. We used to laugh at that in the 50s. Anyway, thanks for that. Does, does it mean like in the... But now that's spoiled lobby correspondence. I can't now have lobby correspondent as a feature. Anyway, so let's make sure our lobbies are washed down when we get to the but lobby But does lobby wash down, does it mean like washing the front of a shop? Is that what it means? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's all it means then. I would like to, at this point, read an email from Andy in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay. Just first of all, to welcome again our American listeners. Hello. And to this is the sort of email that sets this show apart. Okay. Okay. Uh, Dear uh, Father Simon and Monsignor Mark. Okay. This isn't a confession. Mm -hmm. Hills to die on can sprout up in the most unlikely of places. Okay. And what do you know, here's one cresting beneath my feet. In last week's show, Mark said, with regards to the Irishman, okay, yeah, can I play devil's advocate for a second? Right. Yeah. In corporate America, one hears the phrase devil's advocate daily, almost always said by a colleague who has a contrary opinion and doesn't want to be responsible for it. Mark has taken proud possession of enough contrary opinions to reach the moon, so that's not the issue here. Okay. The issue is that, and these words are in capital letters, Okay. Devil's Advocate was not a temporary role. During the Catholic Church's long, laborious, multi-stage process of canonization, Yes. The Devil's Advocate... Was the person who argued against... Proper name, Advocatus Diaboli. That's right. Sounds like a fantastic Mm -hmm. pasta dish 
was an appointed canon lawyer dedicated to picking apart a candidate's case for sainthood. Yes. They conducted several rounds of exhaustive forensic examination. Only the strongest cases survived their scrutiny. Yes. In short, you can be devil's advocate, but you cannot be it for a second unless you want to sound like a wimpy American middle manager. Devil's advocacy is measured in weeks, months, even years, and we all benefit from such dedication. Yeah, fair, that, that, that's a very good point. When I interviewed William Friedkin recently, oh. he told me that during the uh, canonization, it was somebody sanctification of some I mean somebody like Mother Teresa but you know who and he was talking about whoever it was that had to be the devil's advocate who who was the devil's advocate who had to argue that they were a terrible person and Advocatus therefore Diabolus yeah exactly and uh, and yeah that, that you're completely right and and uh, I stand duly and humbly correct anyway, Andy signs off clicking send before the sheer pedantry of this suffocates me. <laughs> uh, I'll have an Advocatus Diaboli, please. Yeah, Easy you. on the anchovies. <laughs> thank you so much. Before we get... So this is... Do you want Romana or classic? I'll, uh, always a Romana with coleslaw. So can I just say, we're talking about the Irishman now because we've got the box office top ten and because yes. of all the aforementioned conversations, mm-hmm. it's not in the top ten. Yeah, we don't know. Um, because this is not allowed. Uh, so an email from... He says, don't worry about pronouncing the surname. Okay. But, so therefore I'm going to do it. Dimitri Papadimitriou. Papa I won't bother with this. Papadimitriou. Hello, Dimitri. Thanks for writing in. After nearly 10 years of listening to your fine programme, I have been compelled to write in for the first time after watching The Irishman. Okay. I had the pleasure of seeing the film on the big screen last Friday, and simply put, I have not been able to stop thinking about it since. The movie has managed to latch itself onto the inner workings of my mind, and over the past week, I've constantly been replaying moments from the film and reliving the experience of watching this epic tale unfold in front of me. Excellent. The first half of the movie feels very much like vintage Scorsese, with many of the same flashy camera movements and classic music cues we've previously seen in Goodfellas and Casino. During the second half, however, there is a subtle shift and the film becomes a much more sombre and reflective experience. Mm -hmm. We slowly see the heavy toll that Frank Sheeran's choices have taken on his life and the way he has driven everyone away who he ever loved, one way or another. It starts off as a film by the director of Goodfellas and ends up as a film by the director of Silence. Very good. I was a big fan of the Charles Brandt book, I Heard You Paint Houses, yep. uh, which is... Uh, the book on which, on which it's based, yeah. The screenplay was based. And I think Scorsese's done a masterful job bringing the story to life and imbuing it with energy, melancholy, regret, and plenty of humour. So, Dimitri, thank you. Very good. Much. I agree with that. We're going to carry is. on talking about it. I love, that, we... I love that phrase. It started off being directed from the director of Goodfellas and ended up the director of Silence. It's a much better I'm, film than Silence. I'm sure you could use that. Just claim it. I will do. Uh, it's a quarter past three. Box office top ten. So we don't know where Irishman is, but it's sort of lingering. Yeah, around. it's around somewhere, but we're not allowed to know what it's taken at the box office. Which sounds like a retrograde step to me. Uh, Terminator Dark Fates at ten. Which, you know, I know that we've had many emails from people who really appeared to enjoy it very much, but I, I wasn't crazy about it. Um, I, I just wanted much more from those performers and those characters and, you know, Cameron's involvement. But, yeah, it's all right. I got an email from Jason Mohammed. Mm-hmm. Fully paid up member of Presenter Pew, as you know, he says. Um, an occasional presenter standing in for me, should I ever get to go on holiday, which I never do. When watching Terminator, Dark Fate, three stars recently, a large posse of chaps to my left at the local multiplex were extremely well behaved, eating popcorn, slurping their fizzy pop, but appeared to have bought the entire local beauty store's collection of links. 
other brands are appropriate. Now, I oh, always link, oh, see links. Yes, L Y N X X. Now, I always said to myself that the only time I'll email the good doc 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 doctor COVID is when I need to know if something is code compliant or not. That hasn't been discussed on your fine show slash podcast slash social media channel slash down the pub thus far slash top seven film pods in the world Eves. so how much links africa is too much for your fellow cinema goes <laughs> asking on behalf of some chaps to my left i mean what even is this boots the chemist keep up the good work jason mohammed thank you jason for staying in touch and you, it's just general courtesy you have to think about the amount you splash all over splash all over but splashing that, that was that was brute wasn't it that was <clears throat> old spice is another splash it all over but the li- i've that's a that's a younger generation thing i've never used links but right, so clearly, I don't know. if you're going into a closed space, think about the amount of perfume you're yeah. going to wear. It is definitely true that um, the younger generation of today are more concerned about bodily hygiene than we were when we were kids. I think we just all smelt. I like to think I was always fresh. I wasn't. Okay, well, I like to think I was always, <laughs> okay, fine. I was always fresh. I mean, I think, you know, good for them for taking bodily hygiene into account. Perhaps a little bit too a, much. A little too much, yeah. Sean the Sheep. Uh, movie Farmageddon's at nine. Which I absolutely loved. I just thought it was a delight and it's a reminder of how thrillingly all-inclusive cinema can be when it's at its best. Midway is not Midway, it's at number eight. And the joke is, you know, yes, we always wonder well, how far do we stay through this movie? We stay until Midway. It, it's That was one of our listeners' jokes. Yes, although I think it occurred to everybody as they were watching the film. It's rubbish. But I like Ed Skrein... And I think he's doing his best with a with a with a role that is written. You know, the entire character development is that he chews gum, and you know some of the dog fights are quite well done. So to give it its due, it does give you some exciting fighty action sequences, but it's very 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 badly written. Midway's at eight. Abominables at seven. It's fine again. Some moments of exciting animation, which remind you just how. The possibilities of you know modern animation are, but it, I I don't think it's essential by any means. Number six, the good. Liar! You see, you liked it more than I did, I did, but you do that gag. Well, I think I, I would go and see it again. Would you just to watch his face? I, I, oh, oh. Oh, sounding like Frankie. Again. <laughs> anyway, Adam's family's at five, which I still haven't seen. Maleficent, that's Maleficent. Maleficent. Mistress of Evil is at four. Which, you know, we had we had so many emails in from people who went to see it with uh, often with you know daughters or and 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 found in it a story of female empowerment and female friendship and I'm that's great and I'm really glad that's what they got out of it. I'd be lying to say that that's what I saw in it. To me, it just seemed to be terribly corporate and terribly mechanical. But we will revisit that subject later on in will the we? program. Yeah, not of Maleficent, but about you know of, of whether or not it's possible. Well, not whether it's possible of, of a film which ticks all the boxes in terms of things you want a film to do, but somehow still leaves you unsatisfied. Joker is it three? Do we have any more correspondence or have we absolutely... I think we've exhausted, Joker. All the correspondence which I'm about to get to is Le Mans and Last Christmas related. So can I just say on the subject of Joker, so Joker finally leaving the number one spot, which it was there for six weeks, which, which was an extraordinary achievement. Not least because a film that opened amid such controversy 
you know, controversy does draw attention, but it also can put off potential viewers. I think it, it. I had no idea how well Joker would do. As I said, I broadly speaking liked it. I had no idea that it would hit the nerve that it that it did. And it now appears um, that it's a very strong awards contender, and it is definitely true that it. Whatever you think about it, it is one of those must see films of the year. And I just remember that when I, you know, when I had seen it in the week that it came out, speaking to a couple of people who I'm good friends with and whose opinions I respect, who hated it they didn't dislike it they absolutely just hated they despised it it. and it is really interesting that it's one of those movies that has demonstrated that something can be profoundly divisive and profoundly successful at the same time uh which brings us to number two le mans 66 well that's not very divisive is it le mans 66 it's great it's it's really really good fun and uh, you know who knew that it was going to be this much fun i mean the accents are very very broad particularly christian bale um but i think it's it was just really entertaining i i I didn't know the story beforehand, but I think you you know you you like the characters, you root for the characters. The motor racing scenes are particularly well done, and I know I thought it was I, I went in with low expectations, and I was really entertained. Mark Woodruff, I've just come bounding out of the fantastic Picture House Central after watching Le Mans '66. You have to see this very loud because the joyous noise of the throbbing V8s made me cry. Bale and Damon have fantastic chemistry, and the racing is so visceral that I've stopped sweating for an unspecified period because of such adrenaline highs during this movie. Not sweating, huh? The cartoon Italians were a bit silly. Enzo Ferrari was a gentleman and a brilliant motor racing driver, not a mafia boss. (laughs) If you want a rip-roaring Hollywood snorter, then don't miss this. Plus, I'm happy to report that footstepsis was in short supply, although there was one scene where Bale's character was wearing plimsolls but still managed to make the sound of a Blakey wearing seventh and sixth former <laughs> when he walked across an office. Uh, it's long at two and a bit hours, but the time flashed by as fast as the, as the cars. Uh, I'd say. Can I just ask top production car. team a question? Where's the aeronauts? I, I can see that it's not in the top ten, but where is the aeronauts? We'll check that out. And the reason the reason I asked that is, um, my daughter went to see it uh, the other day. She said, "What can I go and see in the cinema that's good?" And I said, "Well, I really enjoyed the aeronauts." She went to see it. And she really enjoyed it. Thought it was terrifically exciting fun. And it appears to have it dropped out. Yeah, yeah, it appears to have dropped out, which, considering the subject matter, is an odd one. And in Walthamstow, um, I'm happy to report I found Le Mans 66 to be an absolutely rip-roaring ride. No film yeah, should exactly. ever be longer than one hour, 45 minutes. Editors. Editors. But Le Mans, uh, Le Mans two and a half hours positively raced by. Yes, there were a few clichés bandied about. Smarmy exec Josh Lucas was an unnecessary pantomime villain. I didn't think so. I thought he had the As tone of the film right. The battle between creator and corporation and man and mortality provided more than enough tension. It was also difficult to be anxious about Bale's tea-glugging giddy-up girl, proper brummy acting masterclass. <laughs> However, from Bale's considerable acting chops, a fully formed and charismatic Ken Miles emerged, easily matched by Damon's charming Shelby and it was this believable and moving portrayal of friendship and family that kept the heart of the human film rather kept kept it human rather than mechanical I spent the final third of the film stomach clenched barely breathing as the totally immersive gear clunking smoke filled oil splattered race scenes frayed my every nerve. That's a great phrase well done. While there were constant omens that all good things come at a price I still found myself surprised by the ending and also how much this good old, big old American story worked its way into my usually rather blusterproof heart. 
says Anne in Walthamstow. We also have a lobby correspondent on this, Jonathan Negus, who's in Sydney. Okay, really enjoyed the film. There was a great storyline with really exciting driving scenes, especially in the wet, which were realistic and had you on the edge of the seat. There were two or three moments where I really did have a tear in my eye and it also passed the six laugh test, so a little bit of something for everybody. Very good, very good. Aeronauts, the top production team, in at number 12, 84% drop, although bear in mind the first week was um, unduly inflated because it had the the six-day week, it was seven, six day weekend because it had opened on a Monday. Still disappointing. I, 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 I wish it was doing better than that because I think it's a better film than, than that. And number one is Last Christmas. I gave you my heart. Enough. Is that it? Is that what That's all I'm doing. That's all they did. Jen Nah, as uh, NAA. I got told off for the very loud, very non-code compliant. Oh, oh come on! Sake. At that point <laughs> in last Christmas, not sure I was supposed to laugh at that, but I did. The whole thing was a mess, which pains me to say because Emma Thompson uh, is a goddess. Yeah, she is absolutely. She walks on water. Um, Lee Ashcroft. I went into Last Christmas not as a fan of Wham, George Michael, Paul Feig, Emma Thompson or Amelia Clark, but of co-writer Bryony Kimmings. She's a brilliant theatre maker and I have found her work funny, thought-provoking, emotional and singular. A Channel 4 show from a year or two ago on her work as artist-in-residence at a sexual health clinic is worth watching if you can find it. Last Christmas is not the sort of film I would typically go and see. Christmas movies and rom-coms are not my usual thing and I went with a group of disabled adults and carers for work. But with her name attached to it, I was willing to give it the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. It is with with regret, then, that I must say this is one of the worst films I have ever seen. Paul Feig directs competently and it seems to be made with good intentions. But as we all know, those kind of roads only lead to one place. The worst thing was not the fact that it wasn't funny, with cutaway gags even Family Guy would reject in the writer's room, or that it's unbearably smug from start to finish, or that the lead character is entirely unsympathetic with a change of personality in the film's final act that feels completely unmotivated beyond the need to reach a conclusion, or the bizarre racial stereotyping, the nadir of which being Emma Thompson sounding a semitone away from doing an impression of Borat. We've reached the ninth semicolon, by the way. <laughs> or the fact that the It was films, a horror movie, wasn't it, the ninth semicolon? Or the fact that the film's depiction of what it's actually like to be homeless bears little resemblance to what that experience is actually like, mm-hmm. in my own direct experience at least. Another one, semicolon. Or that they appear <laughs> to have crowbarred Brexit into the film for no discernible reason other than to tap into the zeitgeist in much the same way as World War II featured in La Vie en Rose, semicolon, or that it features a version of London that bears more resemblance to William and Kate, the movie, than anything else. <laughs> However, how... However, ever. there's a caveat. Uh, well, well oh, there is there, oh, there's another email. Oh, there's, there's, there's loads. Yeah, go on. Joel Pierce, um, dear grumpy policewoman and cheerful policewoman, one of the central... Co- again, we welcome new listeners... With a, an interesting, challenging email. Okay, okay. Go on. One of the central precepts of Gadamer's hermeneutics. Okay. Hans Georg Gadamer, 1900 to 2002. Incidentally, listeners, he's reading that off a piece of paper. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is that of Vorvoitail, often translated as prejudice. Okay. What Gadamer uses this concept to argue is that our interpretation of what a text means usually relies on the judgment we make prior to reading it, of what sort of thing it is and what it should mean. Okay. For last Christmas, many of the sniffy reviews seem to be based on the vorvitale 
prejudice mm-hmm. that this is a romantic comedy. Right. It is not. It is a Scrooge film in which the Scrooge character thinks she is in a romantic comedy. What we see on screen is clearly not reality, but rather Kate's attempts to mould reality into her own prejudices of what it should be. Aside from the obvious example, there are other hints of this in the film. Emma Thompson's character is a crude caricature because that's how Kate sees her. Santa's romance is portrayed with an atmosphere out of a Scandi drama, not because that's how it actually was, but because Kate thinks that's how romance would be for Santa. Part of the fun of the film is watching characters become more complex as Kate's own prejudices are questioned and corrected. Still, I would argue that even at the end, we are still in Kate's mind, watching her own, albeit much healthier, interpretation of her life, where she is now content to play the character of a reformed Scrooge rather than a romantic lead. Joel Pierce introducing the under-discussed Hans Georg Gadamer's concept of vervoitile. Uh, well, firstly, that is a heck Take of that front row. That is that is a heck of an email, and it's t- terrific. Um, when we did the Secrets of Cinema Christmas movie special, uh, Kim Newman, who's the, the lead writer on that program, Kim uh, wrote about basically all Christmas movies being a version of Christmas Carol and being a version of Scrooge. And Kim would absolutely love that reading. I'll be honest with you, I don't believe it, but it is brilliantly argued and I am very, very impressed by that reading of the film. Uh, there are so many people who really, really liked it. Yeah, go film. ahead, go ahead. As we said when we, were, when we were reviewing it, we look forward to the emails from people saying we went to see it and we really loved it. Yeah, that is the whole point. Go ahead. Uh, ben Murray Holmes. In the same way that films like Jingle All the Way and The Polar Express have become Christmas classics over the years, I feel like Last Christmas could fit into the same category in years to come. Utter tosh, but it's got a good heart, so why not? What can I say? I liked this. I laughed a bit, welled up a bit, and enjoyed the Christmassy ambience of London. It's cheesy, saccharine, and I guess the film's twist the day the film was announced, but it wasn't a waste of my time. I get why you don't like it, Mark, but we need more good-hearted films, so I'm going with it. Yeah, good. Um, Ava Redmond. Last Sunday, after a particularly long day at work, I ventured to the wonderful Everyman Cinema in Glasgow, along with several other family members to see Last Christmas, being big Emma Thompson and Amelia Clark fans, we were rather excited to see the Christmas flick, and having not read any of the terrible reviews, my expectations were suitably high. Lacking a kind of subtlety one would expect from a writer such as Dame Emma, I found myself cringing quite a few times. The Brexit storyline doesn't feel like it's given enough room to breathe, and some of the dialogue around said storyline is possibly the worst I've ever heard. <laughs> but, however... <laughs> Emilia Clarke is charming as ever, and who doesn't love George Michael? All in all, it wasn't great, but we enjoyed ourselves. I believe the experience may have been improved slightly by the news that one of our own is expecting, so really we couldn't have been disappointed if we tried. A big, okay. a big what's up to the Bates-Richard clan would be much appreciated, especially for the extra members soon to arrive. And, you know, and worth pointing out that that email does highlight a, an absolute truth, which is movies do give to you a lot of what you bring to them. Uh, I think that also relates to the previous email with the thing, the word that I can't remember. The, the oh, yes, for, uh, uh, prejudice. Vorsprung Dorsch technique. Uh, this is Hans-Georg Gadamer's hermeneutic philosophy and uh, concept yeah. of 
For Vorteil. For Vorteil. For Vorteil. For Vorteil. Yes, I think it relates to that as well, that, you know, you, what, what, what you bring to a movie does affect the way in which the movie plays, and that's true of critics as well as uh, everybody else. Uh, Esme in Dunedin. I thought Emilia Clarke's performance was wonderful. It held the film together just for me. Despite the clunky plot, I believed in Emilia Clarke's messed-up, struggling Kate and forgave the film a lot of flaws because of that. Okay. We actually received the longest email ever. News and Sport in just a second. Okay. Then it's Chadwick Boseman. The longest... Longest email ever. Wow. On one film. Okay. That's four sides. Four sides. And that's single spaced with quite small print. From David Thompson, all about last Christmas. And is it p- positive or, or negative? It concludes. I'm going to read out the last line. Yeah, good. So even if it's not very good, and it's not, perhaps it's a more interesting film than it's being given credit for. Okay. It's certainly weird. Anyway, <laughs> I, I appreciate you put a lot more work into it than that. Than that. Allows. You wrote four sides and I read out the last line. Chadwick Boseman, in just one moment, just one final word for the moment on Last Christmas uh, from Tom on this email. Um, I am, And he has a fairly unique take on it. Okay. Okay. Tom says, I am emailing to share my thoughts on Amelia Clark's excellent interview. So Amelia Clark was on the show last week. And she was an excellent interviewee. I was diagnosed, says Tom, with a brain tumour at the age of 21, and I am pleased to say that after seven brain surgeries and six weeks of radiotherapy, I've reached the ripe old age of 29 and one twelfth. I know that I'm incredibly lucky to be alive with a loving wife, family and cat. However, wrestling with the concept of your own mortality is quite a challenging thing to process at the best of times and something that I have struggled with continuously. So it was wonderful to hear Amelia Clark express so eloquently the paradox of being acutely aware of the fragile and transient nature of life while feeling uncertain, confused and scared of what every day will bring. Almost dying has not, in my experience, led to an immediate increase in DM's carpaid <laughs> or YOLOing, but instead uh, feeling guilty about my lack of birdsong it mentality and stressing about the small normal stuff like work, money and what would happen if I was ever invited to watch Last Christmas. <laughs> I was relieved to hear that I at least share the overall sentiment of what I would call fear of fear of death, even if Amelia Clark is an A-list celebrity and I am not. I also recently lost a close friend with a brain tumour, which threw my approach to life into sharp relief again. So I can only thank Amelia Clark for suggesting that it's OK to not seize the day every day. Down with the Nazis, up with the NHS, was up to Laura and rest in peace to Dan from Tom. And as if, if, you, if you missed the interview, it's still available, obviously, and you can download the podcast. And Amelia Clark has, as she wrote in a very long article in the New Yorker magazine, yeah. talked about what it was like to, to have that go wrong with her. I think it was in between the first and second series uh, of Game of Thrones. And she's written about it very beautifully and she speaks about it very eloquently on last week's programme. And what she said was, it's astonishing that you go through it and at the end, you, you, know, you do still worry about the small stuff. Yes. You know, the, you know, the, yes, which it, it, was, it was a lovely interview. Uh, Chadwick Boseman is our guest this week. We're going to be talking about uh, 21 Bridges. Mark's review is on the way. A clip, first of all, in which you'll hear Chadwick playing the role of Andre Davis and Sienna Miller. They're both cops. Sienna Miller playing Frankie Burns. Are you who they say you are? Who do they say I am? You tell me. He killed a lot of perps in the last 10 years. Never shot first. Never. All right, let me be more precise, Detective Burns. I've never fired without just cause. Seven dead cops? Feels like a lot of just cause. 
These guys are killers. So I need to know that we got each other's backs tonight. Because I got a kid at home. Doesn't need to wake up without her mother. You wear that badge, I got your back. And that's a clip from 21 Bridges. I'm delighted to say that it's star Chadwick Boseman. He's in the studio. Hello, Chadwick. How are you? How you doing, man? I'm doing very well. Simon, uh, Simon. Yes, that's right. That, that's right. That, that's me. Uh, was your first time in London at the British American Drama Academy? Yes. It was in Oxford, but we would come to, we would come to London to, to see plays uh, some of our weekends. So, you know, and just scrounge around and party. And <laughs> so it's just like the old times for you. And this is here. not like the old times. No, we're, this, this reminds me, I think, when I... I'm riding around and we see the West End. It just reminds me of what, what I was trying to get to. You know what I'm saying? So it's good to be here for that reason too. I feel as though we've been talking about you and this film for quite a while, which I'll explain. So when Get On Up came out, Mick Jagger came on the show, so we talked to him. Right. Barry Jenkins, when he was on talking about if Beale Street could talk, he was raving about Stephen James. Right. Okay, so we're kind of primed for that. Sienna Miller was on the show just a couple of weeks ago talking about American Woman. So she was telling us all about the film. Lupita Nyong'o came on for Panther and was telling us about working with you. So I kind of feel we're primed for this film now. Yeah. Well, you know what? Six degrees of separation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so tell us, tell us about 21 Bridges. The funny thing about this, this film is that uh, it came to me through the Russo brothers on the premiere night after Infinity War, after, you know, I had just seen myself killed on screen. <laughs> Spoiler alert. And they, and they gave me, well, it's, no, it's, everybody knows now. And they um, came to me with a script. And I was like, well, am I really dead? Is that what's going on here? And uh, they were like, no, no, you know, just we just feel like you're, you're perfect for this role. It had a lot of the, those elements of, you know, the anti-hero films, those older sort of cop films that question justice. Um, I was thinking Serpico and Serpico, French, Connection French Connection and all those. Yeah, yeah it, it had that that feeling. And I was like, I want to do a film like that, you know. And I think the conceit of what made this one different of, you know, there are eight cops killed and you shut down the city. So they, you know, go for broke to find these guys. That appealed to me. And I think the other thing that appealed to me was that you would have, the audience would root for the bad guys. You know, I'm the type of person that watches films and I, and I start wanting them, the bad guy to get away. You know, I, I fell in love with that, not just the cop that I was playing, but with the other side of it. And I feel like if the audience could do that, too. You have the right type of conflict for, yeah. for them. You must be able to pick almost anything. You must have been offered loads and loads of films. There must have been something that was really standout about this that made you want to pick this one next. I think it was that I, I wanted to do a film like this. And then I think I had questions about the character. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, what makes him tick? And very often that's what, you know, makes you want to do a role is that you're trying to figure a person out. Does he have like a moral compass? Where does it, like a high moral compass? Where does that come from? Who Who is this guy? So to me, I wanted to explore who that type of cop was. And I felt like you needed to see this person in the world, you know, sometimes art imitates life, sometimes life imitates art. So you put it up on the screen, it helps people to see something or want to be something. So to get that right, you go and hang out with NYPD? I did, yeah. Um, what did you learn from them? <laughs> Honestly, I saw what it is to, you know, a day in the life of, like, what is it like to stay up all night chasing something, waiting for something to happen, you know, trying to break a case, 
what is that like? And, what, and if you do start to get some clues on what's happening, then that turns into two days, three days, you know, what does that mean in terms of your family life? What does that mean, mean in terms of like commitment to the job and like, what do you lose at home? Mm-hmm. They talked about all that stuff while, you know, while I was with them and they were on set the entire time too. So, you know, I spent my first times with the detectives and the cops I was around going to the to the gun range you know what I'm saying with, with the physical skills of doing the role actually f- doing firearms with them live rounds and stuff learning how to clear rooms but in the midst of that they did a lot of talking and then when I did the ride along I was like oh well I, I feel like I understand more of and, and appreciate more of what it is to be a cop or to be a detective now you're a producer on this film yeah how does that affect the way you approach this this role. The fact that you've been involved from from the beginning must affect everything about this. It it, it just means that you're going to be checking box office everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's definitely true. Yeah, but uh, it, it means that in terms of the you know really every aspect of what you see on screen that I had something to say about it. And it doesn't mean that I did say something, but I had something to say about casting. I had something to say about the script. That must be quite exciting. It is. I mean, even even down to like what takes are we like if you do eight, nine takes of, of a scene, sometimes you're like, uh, that's not the right take. There's another take in there somewhere where I did something different. The fact that you can say that and because you've been involved from the beginning that you know that, you're like, Well, it's take I think it's take four, might be take three. <laughs> you know. To me, I, I'm I'm a storyteller. I, I wouldn't say that I'm just an actor. So to me, being able to like touch other parts of the story, other departments, and help the film is what I want to do. So um, it turns out when Sienna Miller was on, she only told us half the story, obviously, unlike the trailer, which tells you a whole lot more than, than it should, in my opinion. Just tell us a little bit about Stephen James, because he's great. Yeah. And I don't know if that was part of the casting that you were involved with, but he's a standout. Yeah, yeah I wanted him. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted Stefan and I wanted Sienna definitely in this film. And um, I think for the other side of the film, you need actors that can lead. So you needed Taylor Kitsch, you needed... Stefan, in order to carry the the other side, because it's just it's almost like there's two protagonists that you're following. Like I say, you want you want the audience to root for both sides to like switch back and forth. I think it's vital to the film being successful. He's just one of those people who you were talking earlier about when you want the bad guys to get away. Suddenly you, we're thinking, oh, hang on, he's done some bad things, but, but what do we, what, what do we yes, want to happen here? Yes, you have compassion for him. You know what I'm saying, and and you. He knows how to make you like him. And he's a man's man. He stands up for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a thinker. And so you see him thinking. As the actor, you see him thinking. And you see him thinking as the character. So it's sort of like it, he has all of those elements to play that side. Yeah. A long time ago, I interviewed Sean Penn. And he said he can tell, in a movie, he can tell when an actor has done theater. Yeah. And I, as someone who's done a lot of theater, I just wonder whether you, you think he's onto something there. Because there's something about the script in this movie which seemed quite theatrical anyway. I feel like what he's absolutely right about, you know, there's a difference between people that that do theater and film and TV and people that just do film. Uh, It's a different work ethic. 
is a different appreciation for language. You know, in theater, the playwright is God. So you, you always respect that the playwright has labored over these words and you're always trying to find, like, how do I raise myself to a higher level to reach yeah. what the, the, the essence of what this is? And so you're always searching for that. A lot of times in film and TV, people can fall short of that laboring. The writers can fall short of that laboring. But you always sort of hope that they reach that. Sure. I think there's a there's a commitment that's there. And I think it's, a, it's, it's sort of like you have this sort of flexibility when you've been on stage. You're not afraid to go all the way, you know. Sure. You know, it's because you've been on stage, you know what it feels like to be big and still be real. And I think when you can then bring that down on film and then do both at certain moments, depending upon distance and the situation, it gives you a certain power. So he's 100% right about that. And I think that's that's one of the fun things, you know, about about doing both. Finally, Chadwick, I'm sure everyone's asking you about the Martin Scorsese quotes and is it the interview that he gave in Empire when he was talking about Marvel films being closer to theme parks and not really cinema what did you make of that when you heard it to be honest I don't I don't really make that much of the the it's a it's, it's an interesting thing to like dialogue about debate about but the truth of the matter is you you have to listen to what he's saying because of, of who he is and what he's done of course he's talking about the aesthetic of film the aesthetic of cinema but I think he's also talking about the state of the movie-making industry, which is one in which the studios are putting hundreds of millions of dollars into making the, the, the Marvel movies, superhero movies, or whatever. But they're not making movies like 21 Bridges. They're not making you know movies like he, he has made throughout his career. And I think... What's true about what he's saying is that you want you want to maintain a sense of quality and standard in filmmaking. Um, and in, I guess what he's saying essentially is that if you then give awards to to this, if it has the box office and it has the award season, does that completely take over what good film is? So that's a valid point from a person who is a genius at making films. At the same time, you know, it's it's an absolute statement that he's making. Now, he does, I think, in his op-ed sort of, he makes a statement, there is a place where these two can cross. So he, he leaves the, the possibility open for the high-quality superhero film. But he's saying, in most cases, that's not going to happen. I would say, you know, it's probably right. But it's also true that it's really hard to make a good film anyway. Just period. It's hard to make a good film. And so I you know, I I I have to respect his opinion because he's a genius at what he does. At the same time, you gotta think about when he's saying it. He's saying it when he's possibly campaigning for an award. He's saying it, you know, at a time when he's making a Netflix movie. So that's how his eyes get on his film. And it's not going to be in the cinemas. It's not going to be seen the best way. So he, he, again, is speaking to the time period. He's speaking also to his advantage. 
so you have to you have to take the truth of it. You also have to say, well, be be like for me, the statement doesn't like you're asking me also because you know I did a move, I did the first you know a superhero movie that was nominated for for an Oscar. I'm securing that, you know, because I know the work that we did is not the normal work that you would do for a superhero movie. What we were doing had a higher standard to it because we were asking a question, well, how how do we make a movie that goes beyond that? How do we create real a real culture, a real world here where you're not doing a parody of Africa? How do you do that? How do you create that? There is mystery in our in our film because my brother, I remember my brother turning to me like, they're going to kill you? <laughs> you know, the mystery that Scorsese's talking about, it's in Black Panther. You know what I'm saying? So they're going to kill you? What's going to happen? People really thought that. And, and I think the funny thing about it is if he saw Black Panther, he didn't get that. He didn't get that there was this sort of feeling of being unsure there was this feeling of not knowing what was going to happen that black people felt because we never had a superhero like this before. We thought that they, we, we, you like, you know, white people will kill us off. So it's a possibility that we could be gone. So we felt that angst. We felt that thing that you would feel from cinema when we watched it. Maybe Scorsese didn't get that when he watched it. You know what I'm saying? That's cultural. Maybe it's generational. I don't know. But I'm securing what we did, so his statements don't really bother me. Chadwick Boseman, pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. We're candid forever. Thank you, man. <laughs> Can I say, when I, uh, when I said we're candid forever at the end, yeah. he, uh, I just, it was like a throwaway, but it felt like yeah. an appropriate time to say it because yeah. he'd been talking with such passion yeah. about what he had achieved and how he was secure in, uh, in, in the work they'd done. He did the whole, he crossed his... It's like a genuflection thing. thing. He yeah. did cross both arms across his chest. You know, it was like an instinctive thing. Um, but we played a clip of of that answer just a couple of weeks ago, just after we we did we did the interview. A slightly shorter version of it, but with, yeah. With, but you can hear just just one thing because you could do the big review the other side. Yeah, no, you? sure, sure, sure. He's, when you do these interviews, yeah. you have about fifteen minutes, and then about a minute to go, you ask a question which you think this is going to be entirely up to you. This might be a short answer. It might yeah. be a long one. If it's a long one, it's on your, it's your time. It's not my time. So that's yeah, when I asked. Because the publicists can cut you off, but exactly. they can't cut the talent off. So that's when I asked about the Scorsese. <laughs> and you can tell the passion which he answered that and the length of his answer. Lots of caveats, respect to Scorsese's genius and all that kind of stuff, but he's campaigning. It's cultural. It's generational. And that was pretty powerful. It is interesting also that since then, Scorsese has sort of slightly walked back some of those comments. Um, you know, he's, he's because I think he, I think he himself thinks that the thing has taken on a momentum, which have then picked up by Francis Ford Coppola. But what is brilliant about... It made that, it worse, really. Yeah, well, Francis Ford Coppola was just being s- silly. Um, but what's brilliant about that answer, even hearing it the second time in the full-length version of it, is that it's so measured... But it's like it it sort of creeps up behind, and it's lethal. But it's but it it does it with a way of saying yes, you know, I respect and genius and blah blah blah. But then you have to consider, he's got a movie that's not going to be in cinemas, and this thing. And the first time I just thought that is one of the most eloquent. Um, uh, sort of dem- very very polite demolition jobs I've ever heard because it's so well argued and it's so well paced and it's clearly on you know he's clearly 
I know he's thought about it before. In fact, actually, he's I, not reading from a script. No, I got the impression that although, and I said, I said in the interview, I'm sure everyone's asking you this. I got the impression that that isn't the case, and okay. that when when I asked him that question, you can tell he's sort of feeling his way. Yeah. He didn't roll his eyes. He didn't go, yeah. oh, here we go with this question again. Let me give you my pat answer. I think you could hear that that was, uh, I'm thinking this through. I'm coming yeah. to the conclusion. And then the zinger right at the end, that stuff about it being cultural and generational. Yeah, I know. That's the last 10 seconds. I know. It's just, it is, you just want to go, and ladies and gentlemen, that is how you answer a question. Exactly. Uh, other reviews to come, plus more stuff on Last Christmas um, and Frozen 2 all coming up. However, marked it because we were... We, we were talking about other stuff. So much Chadwick. Uh, other, other things were going on. So here we go, 21 Bridges. So, um, uh, directed by uh, Brian Kirk and uh, written by Adam Mervis and uh, Matthew Michael Carnahan. Uh, as we heard from that, in that interview, I think uh, Chadwick Boseman sort of pretty much summed it up, but just to recap, so he's an NYPD cop. We first meet him as uh, he's being interrogated by internal affairs, and we know that he has a reputation of drawing his gun in the line of duty. And they ask him, you know, do you ever feel bad about that? He said, no, I never did it without reason. So he's got a reputation as a hothead, but in fact he's kind of cool. So there's a kind of duality in his character. We begin with this robbery, which two low-level criminals break into a building searching for drugs, and they find many more drugs than they had expected to find. So clearly they've been set up, and one of them, the one played by Stephen James, realises that, you know, hang on, this is not what we bargained for. But the other one says, it doesn't matter, just do whatever you want. And then uh, the police arrive, there is a shootout, there are uh, casualties and fatalities, uh, at which point... The setup is basically that Chadwick Boseman's cop is joined by Sienna Miller, who is a narcotics agent, and he says, look, we figure it's two people and we, we, we think that the way to catch them is to shut down the 21 bridges that surround the island uh, of, of Manhattan and, you know, we shut the, we'll shut the, the, the tunnels and everything else, but that's what the 21 bridges of the title is. So what you've got is a kind of very you know nicely set up thing, which is on the one hand, you've got him. He has a reputation of being a hothead, but he's actually a kind of cooler character than that. You've got a limited geographical space. We're going to shut down this island. They're told at the beginning, oh, OK, you've got, we'll do it, but we're only going to do it until, is it 5 o'clock or 5.30? You've got a limited amount of time, so the clock is ticking. And you've got these two people who are thrown together who appear to be sort of chalk and cheese. She says, I need to know that you've got my back. And are, are, are you the kind of guy do you, that your reputation is? And he says, what's, what's my reputation? She says, your reputation is that, you know, you're somebody who'll draw their weapon whenever it's necessary. And he said, I never did it unless there's a, there's a reason. And she said, well, seven dead cops seems like a reason. Now, you heard from that um, clip, I think, that the, uh, the dialogue which is sort of aiming towards hard-boiled. I mean, it's, it's, it's wallowing in cliché. I mean, it is absolutely gum-chewing, cliché-ridden cop dialogue. Um, but the thing is, I don't particularly have a problem with that because as far as I'm concerned, 21 Bridges is an A-list B-movie. It's a, it's a, a very sort of simple, well-laid-out setup at the beginning of it, and you understand, we're gonna, and everything is played very much at the level of character. So Sienna Miller's character, you know, she's, she's hard, she's tough, she's got a kid at home, it's the thing that she wants. He is this person who's got this reputation for one thing, but actually he's the other thing. You've got the two criminals who are very, very different characters. You've got this limited geographical space. So you can start thinking, for example, about a film like, uh, like The Warriors, you know, in which there's a very specific geographic, there's a task that has to be done, it has to be done in a limited amount of time and with a limited amount of resource and everyone's against each other, blah, 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 blah. Um, it reminded me a little bit of Black and Blue, which came out a couple of weeks ago with Naomi Harris, which I have to say, 
came and went under the radar. When I was reviewing that, I said, OK, we know what all the coordinates are, but what I like about it is that it's done efficiently. And in the case of uh, 21 Bridges, it's done efficiently, and at some points it's done really, really well. There's a chase sequence uh, in the middle of it, which is kind of like a quite grand set piece. It's, you know, on foot, uh, street cars, uh, on foot and streets, and then they go down into the subway, so we get, you know, subway. So that's a point at which it most explicitly refers to French Connection, you know, when he's chasing Charnier and they're getting on and off the train. There's a very, very specific uh, link to French Connection there. But it's done really well. I mean... We've all seen chase sequences and, you know, some chase sequences work really well and some chase sequences are just like crashy, smashy, I don't really care. It's got the geography of the chase works, the 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 pace of the chase works, the distance between them as they're chasing each other works, the tension with they're getting on and off, all that stuff works. Um, I don't think that it's particularly deep or serious. It was interesting hearing uh, Chadwick Boseman talking about it and talking about what appeared to be a much deeper movie than I think we've actually got. I think it's got a very, very solid cast. You know, Stefan James, obviously, J.K. Simmons, Sailor Kitch, Keith David. I mean, these are all people who know how to do the job. The characters are drawn with very, very broad strokes. And it doesn't, for me, it's not, we're not talking about Serpico. <clears throat> we're not talking about French Connection levels of character development. But what we are talking about is a nuts and bolts B-movie, you know, thriller setup that is executed efficiently and which I enjoyed. And particularly that chase, which is about like, you know, 12, 13 minutes long, something like that, which really had me doing that thing about gripping the edge of my seat. So I think it's disposable. I think it's on the surface. I think the characters are drawn at the level of caricature, but I enjoyed it. It made me think, uh, which is not a comment about Good Liar, Okay. But it made me think in this, that I hadn't seen a film like 21 Bridges for a while. Yeah. And that it could have been made 30 years ago. The same way that The Good Liar could have been, you know. It's, That's what you it, meant when you said it's like Serpico and those. Yes. That, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But but also, I mean, obviously they have telephones and they have yeah. modern technology. But really it's the kind of cop film yeah. that, you did, that you saw in the 70s. And th- there's nothing particularly 2019 about well, it. Well, it, it is, except for the fact that I think, I don't want to contradict you. But I think I think that I think that during in the, the in the kind of seventies films to which it's referring, the 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 whole you know um, walking to both sides of the line, the idea that a character is one thing or another thing. I don't think it has anything like the depth of French Connection. I don't think it has anything like the depth of Serpico. I don't think it has anything like the depth of the Sidney Lumet films of, of that time. I don't mind that because I felt that what it was, was as I said, a list B movie with you know it's like taking a B movie setup and and doing it as best it can be done. I mean the dialogue is ripe as anything, isn't it? I mean it is really really ripe. And given that this is your Friday afternoon film review show, if it seems to me you can contradict me all you like. Okay, fine. That's right. Yes, because it's am, his show. I, which I am merely <clears throat> alongside you. You are, and you're doing very well. Offsetting you, mainstay. I seem to be offsetting you. Deadpan that's my job. Deadpan. But I enjoyed it, and that's anyway. that's it. It's a piece of popcorn entertainment. I enjoyed it, and it made me wonder why Black and Blue didn't do better because I enjoyed that too. Excellent. I just can you will you will you allow me one more last Christmas? Yeah, I will. Thank you. It's the UK number one movie. Uh, it got a bit of a panning on this show last week. It's the number one movie, as we did in our defence, think Say. that it may well be. Yeah. Um, Thomas. Thoroughgood. Okay. Just got back from a screening of last Christmas at the fabulous Light Cinema in Cambridge. I wasn't hopeful going in. I'm a big film fan. 
I have a spreadsheet of my top 50 movies. This includes works such as A Matter of Life and Death and The Wicker Man. My brother calls me pretentious. <laughs> Needless to say, that's what brothers do. Needless to say, I can get very cynical about five about star-studded festive box office fodder. Plus, Mark's review was, shall we say, less than lukewarm. To say I adored Last Christmas is an understatement. Okay. It completely drew me in and made my heart sing. It felt like my cherished Christmas memories were being brought to life on screen. I don't understand it. Perhaps this is what Mark experienced when he first watched Mamma Mia. All I can say is that Last Christmas is an enigma and I'd like it to stay that way. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I'm really, really glad that people are enjoying it because, I, it, as I said, it gave me no pleasure at all to think that they weren't. You yes, know, because and Paul Figg's a good, good bloke. Paul Figg's a good guy, and I, and I still think that, that that tweet about the Rolling Stone review is the classiest response to having your movie kicked around town I've ever seen, so hats off to him for that. It's quarter past four. What else have we got? Judy and Punch, um, Australian drama written and directed by Mira Fuchs, who... Um, is an actor and uh, filmmaker. She was in Animal Kingdom and Sleeping Beauty. Not that Sleeping Beauty, the other Sleeping Beauty, the, the Julia Lee one, the much creepier one. I don't think you ever saw it. You would have hated it. And The Gift. Okay. So this essentially... Okay, this essentially does for Punch and Judy what Joker does for Batman. But I don't mean that to go on the poster. I mean, I'm using it as a comparison. Okay, so... Might be too late for that. It is. Set in the town of Seaside which is nowhere near the sea, as we learn from the very beginning. So like a small-minded enclave, like something out of the Crucible or the Witch or the Witchfinder General. It's a place in which entertainment consists of weekly stonings of people who are considered to be witches, which did, I have to say, did make me think at the beginning of you know, the Monty Python. And the, are there any women here? No, no. <clears throat> um, so... There's a, it literally begins with Happy Stoning Day. People walking around and saying Happy Stoning Day and passing stones to each other. Mia Waskowska is Judy, who is wife and assistant to Punch, who is, in his own words, the world's greatest puppeteer. They do puppet shows, which rely to some extent on her incredibly balletic puppeteering skills, but more and more on his more punchy antics. In fact, she says to him at one point, is it getting, is it me or is the show's getting more punchy? And he says, it's what the public want. I'm an artist. I can only give the public what they want. He says that, but what he wants actually is a life of drunkenness in which his intake of alcohol and recklessness leads to abuse of his wife and abuse of his child. Here's a clip. Where's that tongue-twiddling maid of ours? She should mind it. Don't give her a whacking. Maid! Maid! That's enough! I'll not go down this road again, Punch. If your true want is to resurrect our show, you have to stay on the straight and sober. Can you do that? Punch! Can you do that? It's one small slip, my love. I got excited. From now on, only good decisions. That's a punch promise. You've made your share of promises already. Promises aren't the hard part. It's the keeping of them you seem to find so difficult. Well, I will try to keep the promises. So you see from the beginning of that, okay, fine. I kind of I've got an idea of where this is going. It's kind of like a sort of you know real life origin story of Punch and Judy. They have a baby. He has a fondness for sausages. She has terrifying dreams of a crocodile. Um, <clears throat> when I was in Manchester in the nineteen eighties, I saw a play. Um, it was written by somebody 
it was it was in Manchester at the same time called the Punch and Judy Murders. I think that's right. And it was kind of like you know what would you do, what would happen if you did a Punch and Judy show as a straight drama? And the answer is it's a horrible you know grotesque macabre um, you, you know thing about domestic violence. And you know Punch and Judy shows which come out of 16th century comedian Alati, and then you know Punchinella which becomes Mr. Punch. I think it, I, I, I looked this up. Apparently, first appearance of Mr. Punch in England, 1662, May 9th, to be his birthday. And it comes out of, you know, the Puritan shackles of being anti-theatre and then theatre having a resurgence. And it's, you know, they've always been shows about uh, the the agent of chaos, uh, the kind of, you know, the, the the rebellious role of Mr. of Mr. Punch. And what this is, to some extent, is, as you can tell from that, it's not Punch and Judy, it's Judy and Punch. So it's kind of like, you know, um, a re-reading of that idea, like a Me Too generation reading of it, a feminist reading of that thing that we've all kind of accepted as part of the culture, but is actually deeply, deeply sinister and deeply, you know, deeply disturbing. And on paper, it's a really interesting film. And there are things about it that I think are really well done. Damon Harriman, who's the guy who plays Punch, who's played Charles Manson twice, has got very good um, balance between being charismatic and creepy. Mia Wasikowska, I've always really, really liked, and she's terrific. It has great production design. You believe in the environment of the town. And that strange thing about the tone between being comic but also being grotesque and frightening, it sounds like it ought to be great. There is, however, a kind of a point in the film in which it does something, that, you know, quite daring, and then it never really achieves that level again. And I ended up watching it thinking, I like the elements in this and I like the story and I'm interested in it. I just wish I was more gripped by it as a piece. So I think, weirdly enough, it's one of those things in which I, I admire the idea of it and I'm interested in the idea of it more than I actually overall admired the film itself and i think is that a directing thing i i think it's probably i th it, i think it must come down to writing i'm not sure i mean i was gen i was genuinely watching it thinking why don't i like this more than i do i think it's that i think that in order for it to work properly it has to do a real balancing act between comedy and horror between realism and theater between you know it, it has to get that element quite right and i think it doesn't quite but that said I would much rather, um, you know, see a film with those kind of ambitions that was trying to do something really interesting with the Punch and Judy thing, which incidentally, I've always found Punch and Judy a really, really creepy thing. Really, really creepy. And the film leads toward a kind of a very dark punchline, which is which is well executed, pun intended. Um, and so they're thinking back on it. And in fact, the more I talk about it now, the more I like it. But I am aware that when I was watching it, I was thinking... This isn't quite sparking. It's not quite doing. It's never. It's never quite found its feet after that central moment. I'm just wondering, and obviously you don't meet many Punch and Judy operatives, and I haven't seen one of those shows for a while. Have, have but they, surely they must have changed. I mean, the, I, not, I don't know. I, mean, I just think kids now, when you know, if you're on the beach or at a kids' party. We're going to look at that in an entirely different way, thinking, no, actually, yeah, I know. that's not... That's not... Funny, I don't know. I don't want to appear to be particularly, I believe the expression is woke, but wouldn't you, as a 10-year-old in 2019, look at a Punch and Judy show and say, I don't think that's entertaining? I mean, I don't know, because I haven't seen one I would since, love to... since I was a child, but I, I'd be interested to know what the... Maybe they've made changes. If you are a Punch and Judy person, or you've seen a show recently... Uh, 
or you're a professor of these things, Professor Punch and Professor Judy, <laughs> uh, get in touch. We would like to hear from you. And uh, I'm just interested to know whether the show has changed anyway. Uh, the email is mayo at bbc.co.uk. It's 4.21. What else have we got? I haven't heard a movie of the week just yet. OK, so let's do uh, Harriet, which is a film, a uh, real-life story of a slave-turned-famous uh, abolitionist who became a part of the Underground Railroad, born into uh, slavery, then um, escaped to Philadelphia, where she became a figure of legend, helping to transport a large number, I think it's 70 people, more than 70 people, over 13 missions, into safekeeping. It's an extraordinary story, which they have been talking about making into a film for quite a long time. I confess that I only know the story... I only know of the story because of the fact that people have been trying to tell it on film, which is an interesting thing. But one of the things that film can do is, you know, raise bits of history that about, you know, which had not been spoken about as much as perhaps they should have been. So um, it is uh, co-written and directed by Casey Lemons, whose CV includes Eve's bio and Talk to Me and uh, Black Nativity. So Cynthia Erivo stars as Minty. We first meet her, that's the the name that she's been given, the slave name. She then takes on a new name after escaping and leading a ragtag group to safety in Philadelphia, where she meets William Still, played by Leslie Arden Jr., who can't quite figure out how she's managed to get there. So where are the others? we no others. But you, you know, you can trust me, I... I'm a friend. Who, who'd you make the journey with? I left my husband and family. It was just me and the Lord. Well, I don't know if you know how extraordinary this is, but by some miraculous means, you have made it 100 miles to freedom all by yourself. Would you like to pick a new name? To mark your freedom, most ex-slaves do any name you want. They call my mama Rip. But a name Harriet. I want my mama name and my husband. Harriet Tubman. So she then becomes somebody, having made that journey on her own, sorry, I was getting my chronology of the film messed up. She then decides that she is going to go back and get... Well, first she's she's looking for her family, but she then becomes somebody who's this is becomes becomes her mission. Um, there was a while I think when Viola Davis was talking about being in a version of the film, um, and I know that that it, as I said, the people have talked about doing the story for a long time. You can see why it is an astonishing story, and a story which actually extends beyond the boundaries of the film itself. It's a real it's a it's a real story of you know bravery and courage, and and it's an extraordinary thing. And I think it's it's great that it's being retold and brought to a whole new audience. And I have to say that what Casey Lemons and Gregory Allen Howard as the co-writer do is they do a very good job of getting a large amount of fairly complicated information and compacting it into a feature-length narrative that becomes, despite it's a really serious subject, but it becomes a really rip-roaring adventure. It's shot by John Toll, who does the you remember with Sean Bobbitt when he was shooting 12 Years a Slave, did that brilliant thing of getting the beauty of the landscape, which is then juxtaposed against the horror of the subject matter. And I think you get uh, some of that in Harriet. I also like the fact that in 12 Years a Slave, that song is a very key part. And in this, song is also a very key part, which is interesting because obviously historically it's true. 
but it's also profoundly dramatic because song is used to communicate information under the radar. Sometimes we see a character who's hiding somewhere, who starts singing, and their singing is heard, but it's not heard by the slave owners because they just hear it as song. And I think, you know, that works really, really well. Um, I think that it has a central performance that carries the drama absolutely shoulder high. It's gripping and realistic, but it also has this kind of slightly mystical element to it, that there is a suggestion that, um, that our heroine, who succumbs to faints and has a kind of connection with the Almighty, actually is in some kind of state of heightened spiritual awareness. And I, the film does a brilliant job of playing that off against these kind of very sort of gritty, tough elements. Great uh, music by Terence Blanchard. I, I, I thought it was really well done. It's called Harriet, and I, I hope that it finds the audience that it deserves. Five Live at 4.26. Uh, coming up the other side of the news, TV movie of the week and TV movie of the week, So Bad It's Bad, uh, which is we give you a whole bunch of choices and, uh, and you've selected them. They will be coming up. Uh, but we've got another movie before the news at 4.30. Greener Grass, fairly small release, written and directed by and starring Justin DeBoer and Dawn Webbe in their directorial feature debut based on 2015 short film of the same name takes place in a kind of nightmarish dream world that looks like the sort of thing that Tim Burton would have dreamed up after a night of heavy caffeine consumption with David Lynch and the cast of The Stepford Wives. So it takes place in this world of kind of day-glow pastels, which seems like a parody of the perfect consumerist American life. The adults are all spick and span and wear braces and the kids are all the kind of people who can turn into dogs at any time because the narrative has this really surreal, fantastical edge to it. Um, here, for example, is a scene in which two women meet on the side of a sports pitch. Oh, my gosh, I didn't even notice. You have a new baby. Oh, yeah, isn't she cute? We wanted to try something new. She's so cute. I love her. <laughs> Lisa, do you want her? What? No, I, I couldn't. She's your baby. Oh, Lisa, you can have her. She's great. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Take her. She's yours now. Oh. she wants you. Oh, we've just bonded. I've been her mom since she was born. She just has to get used to you. Of course. <laughs> so you get a sense wow. from that, of, exactly, of the tournament. I saw this, remember I did a, a show a few weeks ago from the Strasbourg Fantasy Film Festival. One of the many weeks that you were off doing other things. Yeah, I was doing other friends. I was, I was, you know, integrating with the rest of the film world. That's I why it's be alongside you his show else. alongside Simon May. Yes. Anyway, this was a real audience favourite at that festival. And it is one of those films, where, I mean, I liked it, but it is definitely a festival film favourite. Which what does mean, that mean? It means exactly what I just said. But it's what the, does that mean? It means that it played really, really well at a film festival, and I think it would struggle to find an audience outside of a film festival, so therefore it is the classic festival film favourite. I think in its favourite creates a world that makes sense in and of itself, a world in which somebody, we heard in that scene, can give away their baby on a whim, or somebody, somebody decides that they want to be pregnant, so they just put a football up their dress. And then they walk around and then they give birth to a football and everybody accepts the football as their child or a point in which a child can turn into a dog because it's like a kind of fantasy surrealist sketch. Um, it also has a, a very sort of pointed media satirical thing. It's about there's one really marvellous scene in it in which 
the kids have taken their, the, the parents have taken their eye off the child and they come in and find the child watching a program called Kids with Knives. And the program, the, and the child then becomes demonically possessed because it's watching a program called Kids with Knives. So it's that kind of consumerist modern American life satire. Um, I think it does occasionally feel like a series of sketches sewn together. It definitely looks like something which had a short film origin. That's not surprising to learn that. Um, and I su- suspect that outside of the festival circuit, it will it will have a harder run. But if you are somebody. If you are somebody who would go to the Strasbourg Fantasy Film Festival, yes. you, as I said, when we saw it there, it took the roof off. TV movie of the week. Uh, let me see what we have here. Sol Laredo uh, contributes this. Wow, hard to pick from all the classic horror movies showing on the Horror Channel on Sunday. Black Lagoon. Frankenstein, Dracula and Wolfman. That's my Sunday sorted. <laughs> all the TV movies... It covers all the bases. ...that we talk about are all uh, subscription-free television. OK, so you don't have to pay for any of these. Graham Hall. Yep. I'll be glued to the Horror Channel this Sunday for the Monsters Marathon, but we'll set the VCR, for ask your parents, for <laughs> Paris's Burning at 1am in the morning on ask Monday. He actually says 1am in the morning. <laughs> Simon Andrew Morris, who doesn't love a man in a rubber monster suit? It's Creature from the Black Lagoon all the way. Not to be confused with the Creature from the Blue Lagoon, because that's very just different, yeah. Chris Jones, I really liked All is Lost, and it stayed with me. Whatever happened on that boat, there is a cupboard somewhere with something that's going to deal with it, nearly. And a great performance from an actor who doesn't need to show off, just do a really professional job of acting. Liam Pennington, it just has to be Paris's burning, not just a record of a lost age, but a love letter to a culture so often repackaged at cost to the very people it wanted to reach. Vitally important documentary films such as this act as education in addition to entertainment. Enjoy the fierce. Learn some tea. Have I missed something there? Learn some, as in letter tea. Um, I'm sorry, I was looking at something else. That's fair I enough. I wasn't listening to were you. Looking, were you buying some wine no i was just looking, i was just getting the the, the the them that follow review queued up because i know what i'm going to choose now so enjoy I was the just, I was letting it all just go just, on behind me i'll just pretend you know I'm that moment that you fell asleep when i was doing a film review i didn't fall asleep. you did there fall was asleep. A, no first of all nobody noticed secondly it was just like and can no, i just say that says something about your broadcasting that you could fall asleep and nobody noticed that's because you were talking because i was talking for a long period of time okay so it's a bit like you know when you're on the motorway and it's just like endless, 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 repetitive, endless, endless. And you just feel your head. It was that. It's nothing but like that. It was. And then no. I was back. Then I was back because there was lights. We were in Woodland. It was a roundabout and it was fine. I'm just saying that. Okay. You say that like falling asleep on the motorway is a usual thing. No, I'm just saying everybody knows the feeling of when you're in that situation. Yeah, and everybody and knows that if you're your ever head. in that position, you pull over yes. and sleep. I know Obviously, I'm saying it was like that when I was listening to you for a long period of time. It was like being on a motorway, endless, 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 endless. endless. What is our TV movie of the week? Well, a creature from the Black Lagoon. Why? Because it's absolutely brilliant. When can I see that? You can see Creature from the Black Lagoon on the Horror Channel at uh, seven in the evening on Sunday on the Horror Channel. On the Horror Channel at seven in the evening. Yes. TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Are you ready? I am ready. Are you busy? I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. Matthew Salmon, Van Wilder is the only film where I've walked out of the cinema. Really? Jordan Briggs, Gods of Egypt. Egypt. It isn't a film. 
it's congealed failure. <laughs> it would have been less of a mistake to sell... Alex Proyas, I hope you're listening. ...empty DVD boxes with an apology inside. A film so bad, it could not hold my attention in a room with literally no other distractions. Utter tosh. Ben J. Oram. Pretty sure Mark will choose Gods of Egypt. It's the right choice, but I must confess I was amused by its ineptitude. Paul Wilkes, the recent trailers on TV give a glimpse of the brain rot that will be inflicted watching the CGI overload car crash that is Gods of Egypt. Avoid, avoid, avoid. Avoid, avoid. Pretty sure Mark will give this a suitable damning upon its release. Faith Clements, it has to be sabotage. Even with the cast, it has everyone... Even with the cast it has, comma, everyone. everyone is so unpleasant that when they die, you're rooting for the killer, <laughs> for the killer to get through all of them. <laughs> James Adamson, it's no fun watching how bad Gods of Egypt is. It makes me sad to see the director of Dark City reduced to this. What is TV Movie of the Week so bad it's bad? Gods of Egypt. Full stop, full stop, yeah, full stop. boy, oh boy, oh boy. And of course, you know, <laughs> bless Alex Proyas, who took to uh, took to social media to hit back at critics who didn't like his movie, and he said that they are like vultures picking at the ca- at, at the carcass of something. To which the answer is, so you're basically saying that your film is roadkill. In that case, Alex, we're all on the same page. Uh, end of. Uh, when can I avoid? Um, you can avoid Egypt. Gods of Egypt nine at night on Wednesday on Film Four. Thank you very much. You'll find it very easy to avoid. Okay. 4.42, what else is news? Them That Follow, which is this American thriller drama set within the sort of claustrophobic confines of a religious cult. Uh, stars Caitlin Dever, who was brilliant in Booksmart, Alice Englers, who was brilliant in Ginger and Rosa and Beautiful Creatures, and Olivia Coleman, who was brilliant in everything. Everything, indeed. Um, Maria is the daughter of a charismatic preacher, Lemuel, played by Walter Goggins, who runs this rural religious retreat in the Appalachians. They believe in the mystical power of the serpent and their ceremonies involve getting out poisonous snakes and wrapping themselves around them in the belief that their belief will prevent the serpents, the snakes, the poisonous snakes from biting them. Can you hear? I do. I do. Well, the Lord calls a child of our church home. Come on up here. Hockey, come on up here. Hate his call. Are you ready to submit yourself before the Holy Ghost? Yes, I am. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. Written and directed by Britt Poulton and Dan uh, Madison Savage. I knew nothing about this film before going in. I, I, I hadn't. I literally heard nothing about it at all. Um, we hear early on that uh, the church is already in some kind of trouble. Somebody says a child was bitten and the police are involved. Um, Mara is being courted by Garrett, but she's clearly in love with Augie, played by uh, Thomas Mann, who has distanced himself from the church. Olivia Coleman is the mum who is torn between her love of her son, but also her fearsome devotion to the church and her suspicion of the motives of the young girls in the community. And like Judy and Punch, it plays out in that kind of, you know, confined atmosphere of paranoid suspicion in which and puritanical judgment. Uh, Goggins is very good as the preacher who talks about hellfire and wrath and seems always to be on the brink of violence and Coleman is really great as this kind of matriarchal character who when you first meet her seems fearsome and flinty but then you realise during the course of the drama that she's actually kind of 
very scared. And the younger cast members are terrific at giving the impression of people who've grown up in a world that they didn't create with which they are trying to conform, but which does not conform to their lives. I thought a little bit about re-education of Cameron Post, which I liked very much. Mm -hmm. I think you did too. That same sort of sense of being, you know, in this incredibly restrictive environment in which the only thing you can do is either conform or escape. I suspect, I mean, it's a peculiar film, and I suspect that it has a fairly limited audience. But if you're interested in the subject matter, and I am... Um, I was, it reminded me something. Remember, I reviewed a film called *The Endless* about a, a, two brothers who had grown up in a cult, and they go back to visit the cult to see whether their memories of it are right. It reminded me slightly atmospherically of that. If you are interested in the subject matter, we just said I do have an interest in it. Um, then I think it it is acted with enough conviction to give it real bite. As I said, I think it's it's a it's a niche film, and I don't think it's something that's going to have a particularly big audience. But if you're interested in that kind of religious fervor, cult mentality thing, I think it's a very good portrayal of everyone's conflicting beliefs and and emotions. And I was I I, I was definitely gripped by it. The smart thing about Cameron Post was everything. Apart from the fact that it was very well acted, but the fact that even though there was enormous kind of emotional abuse taking place. Yeah. That the that the the people who were running that school, that kind of camp, mm-hmm. still in their own twisted way wanted the it, correct thing and exactly. the right thing for the people. And that exactly they were the same and exactly the same is true of this, of them that follow. Exactly the same is true. And that's actually what makes it more powerful, is that they're not just caricatures. We spoke earlier of a film in which I think the characters are caricatures. Well, in this case, and particularly in the case of Cameron Post, which was brilliantly directed by Desiree Akavan, um, I think they weren't. Okay. Uh, is it Frozen 2? Frozen 2. So, okay. you know, a few years after the events of the first film, Elsa starts to hear strange sounds from the north calling her to the forest. There is a new quest, a new problem to be solved. Um, this is directed by Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck. We made the first one, the original characters back. We have the songwriters from the first and composers. So the kind of the key elements are brought back together again. Um, Josh Gad as Olaf now growing up and dealing with... The, the problems of coming to terms with a slightly more mature view of the world. Here's a clip. <laughs> Enjoying your new permafrost, Olaf? I'm just living the dream, Anna. Oh, how I wish this could last forever. Mm. And yet change mocks us with her beauty. What's that? Forgive me, maturity is making me poetic. <laughs> Tell me, you're older and thus all-knowing. Do you ever worry about the notion that nothing is permanent? Uh, no. Really? I can't wait until I'm aged like you so I don't have to worry about important things. There was a quote back in 2014 in which they were talking about um, possible sequels and uh, Disney said they wouldn't mandate a sequel. They wouldn't force storytelling. Although obviously, you know, sequels are wanted because, you know, the first movie was such an enormous hit. And then over the course of years, there was this constant thing about, well, we'll only do it if the story's right. And, you know, but it was clear that they wanted to do it. But they were also kind of saying, well, we won't do it until we know that all the storytelling elements are are in the right place. And uh, seeing Frozen 2 is pretty much what you'd expect. It's, the visuals are very, very slick. Um, it has uh, some, you know, belting uh, songs into the unknown, which is this kind of great big soaring thing. Which it's not let it go, but it's, you know, in the same kind of league. There are power ballads, there are emotional highs. There's... Uh, Olaf does a very funny song about when I'm older, that everything will make sense uh, when he's older. There is some spectacular visuals and there are characters that we have known to love. 
I have to say that I never felt the same level of emotional involvement that I did with the first one. When I was reviewing the first one, I was really, really surprised. And I said this, I'm sorry, I looked my review up. I said, it has everything you want for Christmas, belting songs, soaring hearts, snappy jokes, and an inspirational reworking of the traditional happy ending. And technically on a box ticking level, all those things are true of Frozen 2, which I have no doubt, incidentally, will be a runaway smash. And I'm sure that next week we will have plenty of emails from people saying, you know, how much they enjoyed it. The comparison. have that this week. Uh, fine. The comparison I would make is it ain't Toy Story 2. Toy Story 2 began life as a straight-to-DVD project, which some way into it, they said, you know, this is better than that. This is actually so good that you need to release this theatrically. And then Toy Story 2 was the film that arguably was better. It was, it's the Godfather 2, mm-hmm. Toy Story 2. I don't think that's true of Frozen 2. I think that there is so much affection for and investment in the original characters that people will be delighted to re-meet those characters and to hear the new songs. And it's certainly it's been done, you know, by the largely by the people that brought us the first one. I just what I didn't get, and I'm sorry, is I didn't get the magic. I thought it's fine. Frozen was so much more than fine. James Newman in London. Uh, I'm a self-confessed Disney fanboy and I've enjoyed Disney Animation Studios' recent attempts to create family-friendly films that contain messages such as anti-racism with uh, Zootopia, Zootopia, Zootropolis. Frozen achieved this by breaking the norms of what a fairy tale is and focusing on love between family and ideas of feminism. Frozen 2 has kicked it up a notch. And I loved the film for that. Frozen 2 is, a truly, is truly a film for 2019, addressing issues of colonialism and how we deal with actions of our ancestors. Sure, the animation is beautiful, the joke's funny, and the songs uh, will stick in your head, but the morals at the heart of the film is what makes me want to discuss this movie's message with my young niece and nephew. Perfectly valid points and very well made. Sophie Hart, age 27 and still trying. <laughs> Dear Anna and Elsa, you can decide who's who. As I left a screening of Frozen 2 last week, which I thoroughly enjoyed, I was struck by how much Disney's animated movies have matured in the past decade. Having grown up on Disney's 90s Renaissance movies, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, yeah. being particular favourites, I was never bothered by the unrealistic portrayals of romantic relationships that many object to. The cold never bothered me anyway. They are very good. They are fairy tales after all, and the music, humour and beauty is enough to make up for their sometimes questionable messages however the frozen movies show that we can do better the first film definitely navigates dealing with anxiety letting go of fear and the power of familial love the second goes even deeper using flawed and emotional characters to depict grief separation anxiety and healthy romantic relationships anna really goes through the mill in this one and christoph supports her without ever stifling Both sisters are tested like never before and find it within themselves to overcome some truly dark situations. It does all this without sacrificing humour and an infectious soundtrack. In fact, Olaf's newfound existentialism is one of the funniest parts of the film. It is. Like Big Hero 6, Zootopia and Moana, we've reached a point where an animated Disney film does more than just entertain. It makes you leave the cinema wanting to be a better person. Maybe I'm overly emotional having recently seen the movie with my older sister, but I just wanted to pay tribute to this last decade of kids' animation, whether Disney or not, for bothering to try and make the world a more empathetic, emotionally sensitive place. Mm, Now, go build a snowman i agree with all of that um i just it didn't hit me in the same way that it hit you but i agree with all the points that are raised again it's another example of uh, i wish i liked it more i like it enough 
And it will be absolutely huge. And I guarantee you that next week we will have 20 emails saying, stop being so grumpy. I went to see it with blah. And I really, really when you it. have When you've seen that film or any other film, we invite you to become a lobby correspondent. And then, which just means you stepping out into the lobby afterwards, uh, you record a brief report. <laughs> a and brief. Assessment. Let's just say 10 seconds tops. If it's 12, it's fine. Uh, and then email it to mayo at bbc.co.uk and uh, you can be a lobby correspondent on next week's programme. Yeah. Elsewhere. I Lost My Body. Now, if you want something that's really exciting in animation, I Lost My Body, which was a prize winner at Cannes, at Sitges, at Strasbourg. Again, when I was at Strasbourg, it played there. Um, gets a limited theatrical release before coming to Netflix. It's been picked up by Netflix, who are currently doing a lot of very interesting work in uh, animation. They're picking up a lot of interesting films. Based on a book co-written by, written by the co-writer of Amelie, the screenplay, it's a story of a severed hand that escapes from a medical laboratory and hospital in Paris and tries to find its way back to its body. It is the I Lost My Body. We see it crawl through the streets, through subways, over rooftops. It is longing to be made whole. At the same time, we see in flashback a parallel story of the body that it is lost, of a young boy who as a child recorded the sounds of the world around him, who then has a fractured childhood due to a tragedy in his past, who then falls in love with the disembodied voice of a woman whose voice he hears on the intercom of a tower block. Um, you can hear from that that the film is about severance. It's about things being broken, longing to be made whole. And the film itself has a kind of kaleidoscopic uh, structure in terms of the way that it deals with time, in terms of the way that it deals with uh, emotion. But what I love about it is it is one of those films in which it is absolutely full of uh, things put together that you wouldn't expect. So, for example... The setup sounds like a horror movie, you know, the disembodied hand yeah. crawling around, but actually it's very tender, very melancholic. It's aimed at adolescents and adults, so it is a, you know, it's for, for a different market than uh, Frozen 2 would be. And I think it deals with those markets brilliantly. Like Michael Dudok DeWitt's uh, The Red Turtle, it uses both um, 2D and 3D animation, a certain amount of rotoscoping, so it uses whatever tools are necessary to tell the story. It has an absolutely brilliant score by Dan Levy, which highlights the romantic sense of longing and loss. And the thing that it does most brilliantly is at the centre of it, it has a character who cannot talk because they are a disembodied hand. And yet through gesture and mime and the movement of fingers, it manages to suggest pathos and anticipation and ennui and a range of emotions that are astonishing for what is essentially a mute animated hand. So it does that it does the thing that I want movies to do. It refers to silent cinema, but it's modern cinema. It's animation that uses all forms of animation that are available to it. It draws on horror. It draws on romance. It's a film about memory and what it means to have lost something. I mean, if I was more pretentious, I would say it's Proustian, but I'm not, so I won't. But you just have. Yeah, I know. That was a well-constructed gag. Mm. I absolutely loved it. It exists in two versions, well, three versions. I saw it in, when I was in Strasbourg in the French version with subtitles. I've just seen the dubbed version, which is going to be... If I, actually, I think there are, it's available in many different... Subtitles. I've seen the dubbed version, which actually I thought was every bit as good. I think it's a really remarkable film, and it is called I Lost My Body, and it is directed by Jeremy Clapin, and I think it's really terrific, and it's made a real splash within the animation circles, and rightly so. Just a quick question before our final film. Yes. If you had to choose just one version to see... Yeah, I actually, I'd say go for the English dub. I think it was really well done. Okay. Uh, One more film. La Belle Epoque, bittersweet French romantic comedy drama, which, you know, coming from me, it's like honk, but no. 
So, not to be confused with the Fernando Treiber movie, which I know you were about to do. You were about to say, confuse it with the Fernando Treiber. Yeah. I'm not saying that. No, not the other one that won Best Foreign Language Film. This is uh, written and directed by Nicholas Bedos, stars Daniel Otoy as a man out of time. He is in his 60s. He's married to Fanny Odon's Marianne, but he's stuck in the past. He's unable to deal with technology and the internet and modernity. Uh, Guillaume Canet is Antoine, who runs a company that stages these productions for time-travelling immersive shows that you can go and role-play um, you know, something from the past, which we see at the beginning, uh, white privileged people who are role-playing, living in a time in which their contemptible power is not considered to be contemptible. There's another one is a scenario of getting drunk with Ernest Hemingway. Anyway, he is gifted a treat, which is the ability to live in a scenario which replays the meeting that he first had with his wife. His marriage has fallen apart, but he is able to go back to this artificial invocation of the, this 1970s setting and relive the day that he met and fell in love with his uh, wife, who is played by Dorotilia, whose own relationship with the person who is directing the scenario is breaking down. So what you've got is somebody whose marriage has collapsed, playing a younger version of themselves, reenacting the first meeting with their wife, who is played by somebody who is in the process of having broken up with the person who is directing the scenario. Hey. It sounds... Yeah. It sounds, incidentally, that's like the thing that Olaf does at the beginning of Frozen 2 in which he recaps the plot of the first film. Nice. Um, I expected to find it grating and I thought it was really charming and really, really funny. I, I enjoyed it so much. Um, I, was, I, I laughed, I was moved. It reminded me of, did you ever see Midnight in Paris, the Woody Allen uh, yes. Uh, what? Yes. Let's just assume which, that okay, I have. So that's it's a nostalgist one in which he keeps wanting. Everyone wants to be in a period that happened beforehand. Okay. And and when he goes back, when our hero goes back to the period that he wants to be in, he meets people who actually want to be in the period before then. And what I what I really liked about this is firstly it works. Okay. The immersion in the retro world works, but no, but you still remember that it's an act. It makes sense in and of itself. And when you're watching these people having these conversations with earpieces in, in which they're talking to each other, but they're also talking to other people, it's done really well in a kind of almost like a farce way. And it's done really brilliantly. Great performances. Daniel O'Toy, I would charm the birds out of the trees. And um, and I know from a younger person than me, who, who I saw it with, who absolutely loved it. This has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live Film of the Week. Harriet, I think. So you're surprised by the question. But the, right, but, 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 but the bandy leg dancer guy, he doesn't sing. The guy who does that voice is the, the very short uh, German so, producer. You join us as we're still arguing about Boney M. But that's it, isn't it? The guy who produced them, who is a sort of, you know, like, you know... Uh, yeah, it was all him. It was all, And he was the person who did, you know, bah, 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 all that lot. It wasn't the dancer guy. Oh, those Russians. Oh, those Russians, exactly. No, they, ju they did just dance and mime. No, they sang, the three women sang. No, but, it, but the guys... The guy, singular, was three women and one I guy. there was another guy. No there, no, there wasn't. How do you know so much about Boney M? Well, for heaven's sake... They were like the, one of the biggest bands around. They were they were always number one. There was three women and one bloke, and the dancey bloke didn't do the vocals. Try la la low la vocal. La. Try la la. No, they did that. They were singing that. They were singing that bit. I but he was just dancing around. But the person who did the voice was actually the little produ German producer. Was he German or Dutch? Where did they relate? How did Frank, they relate? What's his name? Frank. Frank Farin. That's right. It was what him. about the Goombay dance band? Because they sounded exactly the same. No, no idea. Were they the same thing. 
I have no idea. Simon Poole is screaming in my ear about the Goombay Dance Band because he's going to see Boney M. So I'm, I don't know why. I think the Goombay Dance Band might have been better. Shiwadi Wadi were touring, and I think they started touring with, with sons of the original band. And Dave Bartram... From Shiwadi Wadi. From Shiwadi, yes. Dave Bartram was managing them, but not performing in them. So I the think DVD... Romeo Challenger's daughter, the son, Romeo Challenger's daughter was... Son? I did it twice. Daughter, son, daughter, Romeo son, Chal- daughter, I... son, daughter, son, daughter, son, daughter, son. Which? Son. Daughter or son? Son. Son, then. Not daughter. Why son. Did, why, did, why did my brain... Romeo Challenger's DVD son. of the week coming up. Are you going to review something? Oh, well, I was just going to say... It that... didn't fit in. Okay, we, am I good now? Daughter. Ken Russell's Tommy oh, yes. is back in cinemas thanks to the BFI's musical season. And, the, I mean, if you haven't seen Tommy, this is a brilliant chance to see it. But if you have seen Tommy, it's a particularly brilliant chance to see it on the big screen. And now, because, you know, uh, cinema sound systems have moved on, when Tommy played in most cinemas in the UK, it played with a very, very substandard soundtrack. In fact, the only place you could see it with the original quad mix was when it played in Leicester Square. And for the one time that we played it in Shetland at the Shetland Film Festival, and we played it in quad, we got the original quad mix for it. If you go and see Tommy in the cinemas now with the fabulous sound systems that cinemas now have, you will be able to experience Tommy much closer to the way that Ken Russell originally intended it. And it is, I mean, it's bonkers, but it's brilliant. It's, I mean, you know, the the Who album obviously is a classic, but the film was, if you were like a a kid or a teenager in the 1970s when Tommy came out and that poster, which was, you know, he he will tear your soul apart, the tagline of which incidentally was then taken by Clive Barker's Hellraiser. It's, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's such a breathtaking film and it's, you know, adventurous and mad and crazy. And it's all about false idols and false gods, which is something that Ken Russell was really, really interested in. And I, I just think, and it's got that famous sequence of Elton John doing Pinball Wizard. And uh, It's not a bad version. No, that's a good version. But I mean, I just think, I think the whole film is, is really, really something. And if you get a chance, go and see it in the cinema. Ken Russell's Tommy. Um, okay, so that brings us to our DVD of the week. Very understated giggle. <laughs> hey, Mark. Mm-hmm. What? I had a mouthful of coffee. Uh, are you ready? Yeah, yeah, I'm re- ready. Yeah, go on. Right. Hang on. Oh, I seem to have forgotten my password. Okay. I've been logged out of the BBC system. I, I, I hate to think where this is going. Oh, hang on, I can remember it now. C. H I K E N Chicken. Oh, it says your password must contain a capital. Oh yeah. C H I C K E N K I E F. Chicken Kiev. Okay, I'm in. Right, let's see what people think are worth popping down to Woolies for on Monday. Ser- seriously. What a setup! What seriously. a gag! This is the joke, folk. <laughs> Mark Hoogland, as an 11-year-old, I had my elderly neighbour tape Robocop for me, thinking it was just a fun superhero movie. (laughs) What I experienced the next day scarred me for life, and I'm all the better for it. While I may not have picked up on all the satiric elements back then, Robocop was definitely the grown-ups movie that lit my cinephilic spark. Cinephilic? Cinephile? 
No, it's got... Cinephiliac? No, it's cinephilic. Okay. Do we accept it as a word? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm Hearing Robocop's We've accepted Beloved. Coming down the hall was the moment I realised anything was possible in the world of film. Jake Armistead. Robocop for me. Can't wait to get my hands on, the, on it as Arrow Video are the ones re-releasing it and they have yet to let me down. Uh, Nick Yankovic. As much as I love Robocop, Horrible Histories was informative, entertaining and casting perfection with Kate Nash. Uh, Annie Chan says Jackie Chan's Project A a martial arts love letter to the classic Hollywood era from the homage to, uh, or homage what do we go with uh, well it depends I'm, I quite like homage actually. from the homage to Buster Keaton with that clock scene the Chaplin inspired slapstick and the balletic grace reminiscent of the musical of Gene Kelly and John Watkins in any other week it would be Robocop but Project A edges it for Jackie Chan's physical comedy performance the clock stunt has to be seen to be believed what is our DVD of the week. Well, you haven't even mentioned it, which is weird, which is that Never Look Away is um, on Blu-ray and DVD, and I, I, you know, I would like to flag that up because I think it's a really interesting film. I think my review would still be available on the, uh, on the Listen Again function. And if we're going to go back for an oldie, there are two Blu-ray limited edition boxes. There is the Robocop uh, Steelbook, but there's also Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas Blu-ray limited edition. And I want to mention that because that film never got any of the love that it deserved. And I thought it was a much better film than, uh, than anyone gave it credit for. We all know Robocop's a classic. So what are we going with? I'm going to go with, for the modern one, I'm going to go for uh, Never Look Away, which is the Florian Henkel von Donnersmark film. And for the Florian, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. And which bit, of that is his, which bit of that is the surname? Well, the bit after Von. No. What, von? Nope. Florian Henkel von Donnersmark. Okay. Is, that, is it all surname? Well, and he's actually called Bob. It's, <laughs> I, I went to a lot when I was writing the review of this. The official thing is his, his surname is Henkel. Von Donnersmark is of Donnersmark. So you either refer to him as Henkel von Donnersmark or Henkel, but not... Von Donnersmark. I am going to remember. Because this. it's like saying, of London. Might I be? Incidentally. Yes. Um, I'm trying to wrap this up. Oh, all right. What? I was going to do another one of those interesting Alexandre, you know, Alejandro in, uh, Gonzalez Iñárritu. What's his surname? And we'll come back. Gonzalez Iñárritu. See you next week. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Dr. Ruja persuaded millions of people to join her financial revolution. And then she disappeared. One of Europe's richest women, someone who looks set to change the world, had vanished into thin air. I'm Jamie Bartlett, and for the last six months, I've been on the hunt to try to find the missing crypto queen. And it gets far weirder than I thought possible. Kidnapping, kidnapping, killing... Oh, those from the traditional bank. This is the trick that they do. It's cult. It's very cult-like. It starts to get very, very, very scary. Very, very, very fast. Subscribe to The Missing Crypto Queen on BBC Sounds.